Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. By the time he turned 70, Michelangelo had accomplished more than most people can ever dream of. In fact, before the Italian artist had turned 30, he'd sculpted two works that established his greatness, David and the Pieta. In the intervening years, he'd paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel and complete so many breathtaking projects, he earned the nickname Il Divino, the Divine One. At 75, Michelangelo finished the last project he'd personally complete, a pair of frescoes. But William E. Wallace argues in a new biography that the artist's greatest accomplishment was a work he didn't live to finish, that St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. The book is called Michelangelo, God's Architect, and here to discuss it with us is William E. Wallace. He's also a professor of art history at Washington University here in St. Louis. William, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Do you have a question about Michelangelo. Well, we've got an expert right here. You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Now, William Wallace, I was very surprised to learn this new book is actually your eighth about (laughs) Michelangelo. What about him has kept you coming back time and again and again and again? You're absolutely right. I've written seven books on Michelangelo. This is my eighth, and each time I finish one, I swear it will be my last. Um, And then, much to my wife's chagrin, I realize that there really is no last word on great art or great artists. Uh, So... As I entered my 60s, I started to think about Michelangelo as an aging artist and turning 70 and confronting the greatest challenge of his lifetime. He thought at 71 that he was ready to retire and ready to return to Florence. And suddenly the Pope assigns him to build the largest church in Christendom. And he takes over this project at 71 and works into his 70s and 80s. And I thought, if he could do that, then I can certainly write an eighth book about it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I know at the end of this book, I don't want to give away any spoilers, but uh, Michelangelo's life does end. Do you think there's possibly a ninth book about his life? Well, as Leonardo da Vinci said, Michelangelo's contemporary, said, tell me if anything is ever done. So actually, I think there, ever, there never is a final word. And uh, this is an artist who has fascinated me for most of my professional life. And I'm not sure I have yet the ninth book in me, but I do not think the last word has been said. Okay, so you're definitely not <laughs> ruling it out right there. Now, you're looking at the final 18 years of his life in this volume. Do you think that these years have been sort of undercovered and, and underappreciated by other scholars? Yes, I do. And that's mainly the impetus for writing this book. I mean, for most Americans, we know the Pietà, the David, the Moses, and the Sistine Ceiling. These are the great uh the great promotional works of Michelangelo, the reasons we go to, to Italy and to look at these great works. But Michelangelo finished the Sistine Ceiling when he was 37 years old, and he had 53 more years to live. It's a long time. It's a long time, and that's the part of, the, of Michelangelo's life that most Americans do not know very much about. And so I'm actually arguing that in his 70s and 80s, he becomes busier and more creative than ever. And if you think about, let's say, the best-known movie about Michelangelo, The Agony and the Ecstasy, that also culminates with Michelangelo painting and completing the Sistine Ceiling. 
But he had a lot to do after the age of 37. Mm-hmm. His biographers just stopped too soon, apparently. They stopped too soon. <laughs> now, your argument is that St. Peter's Basilica is actually his masterwork. Why that of all these wonderful accomplishments? Why do you think this is the biggest deal? Probably because it's the most complicated. It was the engineering feat of a lifetime, and it's still one of the great uh, marvels of the world. Uh, it is one of the largest churches and lo- one of the largest buildings in the world, and it really is the dominant building in all of Rome. It's the dome that served to form the model of all domes subsequent to St. Peter's. You look across the landscape of Rome, and the dome of St. Peter's still dominates 500 years later, and every other church dome models itself upon St. Peter's. And the fact is, Michelangelo took over a a building that had been under construction for 40 years, but it was a nightmare of construction mess. It was just a a complete disaster that he had to correct. And so he corrected an engineering disaster and created what was an engineering marvel. So we think about uh, who was the greatest engineer of the Renaissance, and anybody would probably say Leonardo da Vinci, but Leonardo thought of a lot of things and actually accomplished nothing. Michelangelo just did it. Mm -hmm. And he actually carried out one of the most complicated engineering projects ever. You write that he took on this job very reluctantly. Was it because this whole site was such a mess? Precisely. Yes, it was really a disaster. Um, People had um, deviated over 40 years and tried to correct all kinds of uh, construction problems. And nobody had actually considered the real central problem, which was how to raise a dome 200 feet in the air. I mean, that's a huge problem, really. A huge engineering problem. And all they had done was design the idea of the church on paper, but nobody had actually faced the problems of the support of a massive amount of weight that the dome is going to exert. And here is this guy who didn't have training in architecture. It seems like a very scary idea that this is the person who ended up solving this complex engineering problem. It's, it's quite amazing, Sarah. He asked exactly right. And he said many times that he was not an architect. And that's when he was at 71, when the Pope tried to appoint him. He said, I'm not an architect. Well, of course, that's not quite true. He had built some other buildings. But he said the same thing about not being a painter. Hmm. Uh, and he painted the Sistine ceiling when he had never painted a fresco in his life, and he painted the greatest fresco of all time. So this is an artist who was able to go from zero to 60 rather quickly. Now, you mentioned the, the Sistine Chapel. One of the things I found positively shocking in your book is if he had followed the plans laid out by one of these previous architects, um, that would have ended up destroying the Sistine Chapel. How great a loss would that have been? Well, I think it would would be a great loss since 25,000 people go through the Sistine Chapel every single day. It's a huge draw <laughs> even today. That's right. <laughs> and I think this previous architect was doing this design of New St. Peter's on purpose in order to destroy probably one of Michelangelo's greatest works. Hmm. This was maybe a personal... Yeah, I think it was a rather personal... Uh, yes, effort. <laughs> That's interesting. Um, so he, you know, he takes on this huge project, and of course, um, he never lived to see it done. I mean, he wasn't even close. And this is despite having a much longer lifespan than I, I feel like any one of his contemporaries could expect. He lived to be eighty-eight. 
almost 89, a few weeks shy of 89, and the average lifespan in the Renaissance was between 40 and 45. That's extraordinary, really. You could expect to die between 40 and 45, and Michelangelo started to think about dying at about age 40 and did it for about 50 years. He <laughs> thought about dying all the time. It was on his mind. <laughs> but he did live until a very, uh, very advanced age, and as much as he could, he was on site every single day. And if he could and he felt well enough, he would be climbing up 200 feet to supervise those work crews on the building site. How did he feel about the fact that he knew that he was never going to get to live to see this thing completed? This, I think, is the central bit of courage that I just I find so admirable. He knew that he was never going to live to see that dome. He said over and over again that he wanted to do as much as possible to ensure that the dome would get built according to his design. And that's what he worked to accomplish. And he did it. Uh, and so although he never saw the dome, the dome is his construction, his design, and we call St. Peter's his church. Hmm. So even though he only supervised about 18% of the entire building history, that church is his church because of the power of his design and the power of his authority for those 18 years when he worked on it, everybody after him tried to carry through with his project. Now, you write that some of his contemporaries saw some of their signature projects abandoned on their death, and Michelangelo did not. Every last one of his was finished. What do you attribute that to? I, I think precisely the fact that he lived long enough, he worked for nine popes, everybody appreciated that he was the greatest artist and the greatest architect of all time, that he had the authority of, of the most powerful people in the world, and that people recognized that he really had the right answers to all of these building projects. And so people carried forth with all of his projects when so many other projects were abandoned. So you mentioned his um, relationship with these nine popes. I thought it was interesting, the pope who gave him this assignment, Pope Paul. It seemed like they really had a genuine fondness for each other. Was that typical of, of his relationship with these popes? No, not generally. One doesn't usually find yourself being friends with a pope. Uh, but this was a case where, unusually, they were about the same age. They were deeply Christian. Um, they uh, kind of grew up in the same ambience in Florence. And so they shared an awful lot. And by the time they took over St. or by the time Michelangelo took over St. Peter's, they were sharing the same ambition, that is to save this church. And they knew that this was a mission that they wanted to undertake together. And so I think they worked together very well. And then they actually did become very good friends. And one indication of this is that Michelangelo shared all kinds of food items with the Pope. Um, Michelangelo's nephew, Leonardo, his nephew is named Leonardo. It's a different Leonardo, but he lived in Florence and regularly sent pears and ceci beans and ravioli down to Florence, uh, down to Rome. And Michelangelo would send these over to the Pope and share wine and uh, and fruit with the with the with the Pope, and I find this enormously uh, charming that they actually share dinner together and and these delicacies from imported from Tuscany. 
I thought it was very interesting in this book. And, and again, it surprised me a little bit that you were able to draw not only on his letters, but it also sounds like you had access to things like shipping lists and almost grocery oh. lists in some cases. Um, is it just me or was there an unusual number of original sources that, that you were able to access for this research? There is an unusual number of resources. This is probably the best, um, most documented and best documented artists uh, before the 19th century. We have and an enormous. why is that? Well, because he lived a long time and because he was so famous, people wrote about him. There are actually three biographies written in his own lifetime. He was a great letter writer. We have some 1,400 letters to and from Michelangelo. Everybody was uh, talking about Michelangelo. There's an enormous amount of you know, financial documentary records. So yes, we just have an immense amount of information about this. It was easy to actually uh, use this material to really get a, a sense of the texture of his life. It's interesting. So that's in part because he was just so famous and people knew that his stuff was worth saving. Worth saving and worth writing about and talking about and wanting to meet and have any piece of Michelangelo. People wanted a little piece of Michelangelo. It's interesting. You also mentioned that um, he was devout, as was the Pope. We heard from a listener, uh, Kent, called from Brussels, Illinois, and he called in because he wanted to know if, if Michelangelo was a mystic. What do we know about his personal beliefs? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't describe it as a mystic, but he was profoundly Christian, um, and he was. He became more Christian, I think, as as he aged, as maybe many people do. Um, there were times in his life where he actually felt, you know, that he had wasted his time ca carving sculptures early in his life that were not maybe Christian sculptures. So I think he became more and more profoundly religious as he grew older. And we have lots of evidence in especially poetry. He was also an extremely important poet. And much of his poetry is religiously oriented, and particularly because he became very friendly with Vittoria Colonna, who was a very powerful figure, a very devout woman in the Renaissance, and they were very close friends, and they exchanged religious poems together. It sounded like, from that section of the book, which I, I thought was very sweet, it just, it sounded like he loved her so much, and yet you seem to write very confidently that this was a platonic relationship. There, there was no, uh, they never crossed that line? No, absolutely never crossed that line. She was, she was extremely devout, and she actually went and lived in a monastery, so okay. a, a, a convent. So this really um, was a meeting of the minds. No, it was a meeting of the minds, um, and they would, they they wrote more letters than they actually met because she actually did sort of withdraw from life, um, hmm. and much of their relationship was carried on through letters and through poetry. But he had a profound respect for her because she was a little bit older than he was, and she was already a very well-respected and well-published poet, poetess. From her work and, and what you're able to read of her letters, do you think that he made the right call there, that she really was that enormously talented? Yes. Okay. Oh, yes. And people, you say that without reservation. No, without reservation. People study her poetry now in literature classes as they do study Michelangelo's poetry. Mm-hmm. One of the other very interesting things, I think, in this biography is it seems like you're just fascinated by the logistics of art. And for somebody who's not an expert in this area, we, we think about Michelangelo painting, but you've got him out there in the caverns and he's resting these huge blocks of marble and he's out there with his overseers trying to haul up travertine. How much a part of his work was just getting the right raw materials? No, you're absolutely right. Um, and it has been one of my fascinations is that, that making art is really difficult. And Michelangelo was very much a 
hands-on architect, hands-on worker of artists. He chose his own materials. He, you know, he supervised those work crews. He understood what rope was and how important it was. He understood how to build um, machinery to carry these heavy blocks up 200 feet. He understood the importance of water and, and donkeys to carry the water from the Tiber River. In other words, he understood every detail of a construction site on the level of a construction worker. And this is how he gained the respect of these people that were working for him mm -hmm. and why they were wi willing to carry out his ideas because he was not some kind of removed architect with a capital A. He was an architect who could design, but he could also talk the language of the everyday worker, the bricklayer, the marble carver, even the donkey hauler. And was that unusual for the time that he would be that hands-on in those ways? Not completely. I mean, he learned this from his previous predecessors. What's different is the extent that he was knowledgeable in these various métiers. And that's partly because he lived so long that he had a chance to actually learn the, the lessons of all of these various professions. Now, you write that Michelangelo may have been the first person in history to get to read and to even edit his own biography, uh, which is, is interesting to think about that. Um, what did he think of that, uh, that first biography that he got to read there? Well, the first biography was a, almost like a hagiography. Hey it was like uh, Giorgio Vasari, who wrote that first biography, was uh, a friend of Michelangelo and was celebrating him as a great genius. Because it maybe so, a little bit over the top. A little bit over the top, and Michelangelo must have been a bit uncomfortable with it. It was very clear he was a bit uncomfortable because certain things of his own were unfinished still, and he didn't like being called a genius in his own lifetime. So he had, he sort of sponsored a second biography that corrected that a little bit. And I kind of like to think that if Michelangelo was alive still today, he would be complaining about my own biography as well. <laughs> you think he'd think that you're too effusive in your praise, or would he have some other? <laughs> uh, he, I, he would be surely correcting certain things, and he might say it's too effusive, and then he would say, you know, you haven't emphasized certain things that I want to emphasize. Yeah. It seems like he was, um, among other things, he was very proud of his noble lineage. Perhaps you didn't linger long enough on that. Well, I did that... Um, very much in my previous biography of Michelangelo, I emphasize that a bit more. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing about having eight volumes. Right, you, can, right. you can decide what to focus on where. Exactly. Now, as we mentioned, uh, he was 88 when he died. Do you think he had any regrets at that point? Uh, I think his regrets were only that he had wasted time carving certain sculptures and things that he never finished. Mm -hmm. There was an there's an awful lot of unfinished works of Michelangelo that we we now admire greatly, and we put them in the museum. We sometimes I hear people come back and say, "Well, I loved seeing the David, but I actually preferred seeing the unfinished sculptures around the David. They're more interesting because you sort of see the artists at work." Yeah. But Michelangelo would have looked back on those works as um, sort of lost opportunities, and and I think that's where there might have been some regret. The other, the only other regret I think he had was that he was never able to return home. That he to Florence really, to, to Florence. Yeah, I mean he was deeply close to his family, and he was always a Florentine. And the last thirty years of his life were spent in Rome, dedicated to this church and to other projects. So, what do you hope that the reader takes away from this study of the great artist in his seventies and eighties? These these final years. Well, I think you know, even though it's five hundred years ago and he's a long dead, I think there are a couple of lessons we can you know learn in our modern world. And I would I would offer three of them. 
Um, the first, I would say, is don't rush to solutions. Uh, Michelangelo uh, learned that solutions are discovered and they're rarely anticipated. There's always going to be a mistake that comes up. The second would be build solid foundations. He didn't actually see the dome, but he built the foundation that allowed the dome to be built and create the dome. And a good life is also built on solid foundations. And then the third is the most important, and that is to learn to collaborate. Um, this is the most difficult uh, lesson for Michelangelo because he really wanted to do everything himself all of his life. And it took him a long, long time for him to learn to find, to find excellent people and surround himself with excellent people who would carry out his ideas. William Wallace, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm a great fan of NPR and KW on you, and I've had a wonderful time talking to you. And William's new book, Michelangelo, God's Architect, it, it came out in September. You can read it now. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.